Welcome to the Holy City Church Podcast Station. This is Pastor Angel. If you missed Sunday's sermon or want to listen to it again, you're in the right place. We're glad that you can take the time to catch up as we go through God's Word together. So I hope you're ready. But if you're not, grab your Bible. Let's get ready for what God has in store for us today. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. The Lord bless his word. Pray with me, church. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to gather as your church, as your body in Christ Jesus. To come to worship your name. Lord, to come and worship you, O God. As I speak, let them hear you, Lord. Let us hear your words today. Let me say only what you intend so that it may fall on open ears, open hearts, open minds that only you know what to do with, Lord. Do the work, save more. Thank you, Jesus, in your name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated, church. You may be seated. So before... um, we started reading the word. I, I, again, I'm so grateful for Pastor Angel that he gave me this opportunity on such a special day. That's why I'm all dressed up. I'm like, I never get to dress up anymore. And it's Christmas, and we're having the Christmas luncheon. I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm going to, I got this outfit that I've been trying to wear, and like, I never get to wear it. So thank you, Pastor Angel. You've made my Christmas, right? But you, you'll see today when we talk about Christmas, and, and the title today is, of of this message, I want you to hear it now because I'm going to say it often, and by the end of today and even tomorrow, I want you to have this ingrained in your brain that Jesus is the only reason. That's what I want you to remember, right? Because we hear Jesus is the reason for the season, but what about all the other times? What about every other time we're living when it's not Christmas, when it's the summer, when it's another holiday? What happens then? 
And that's what happens is we get distracted, we forget. And this is what, there's only one point to the message today is that Jesus is the only reason. And I'm going to say it often because I don't want you to forget because I forget. We forget as Christians. Jesus is the only reason. And we're going to see these verses. I've separated them to three different parts that we're going to look at. Because we're going to see Jesus presented at the the temple. We're going to see prophecy that was fulfilled. And we're going to see future prophecy. But through it all, the main goal, the main focus, it, it really is from the beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, Jesus is the only reason. Jesus is the only reason. So again, I'm glad the kids um, went next door because I'm going to tell you a little bit about the origins of Christmas, in case you didn't know, and some of the problems that we have with Christmas. But I don't know if you've wondered, and I thought I knew, but I really didn't know, why December 25th? According to the Bible, it couldn't have been in the winter. It couldn't have been because the pastors were out in the field pasturing uh, the, the sheep, uh, whatever livestock they had. That couldn't have happened in December. It would have been snowing. It would have been bitter cold. At that time, usually they bring the animals inside and they're protecting them. At night, they wouldn't have been out there. So that's the first thing. The reason why it was December 25th is due to a pope in the 4th century, Pope Julius I. I'm not going to get into all the details, but he was a bishop of an area and they were writing to him because at that time... Easter had been celebrated since the very beginning, right? The resurrection, death and resurrection was always commemorated. No problem there. But the birth, I guess somebody forgot to record. And I'm saying that jokingly, but we don't have any literature that tells us the day Jesus was born. So Christians were celebrating it. And when I say celebrating, commemorating it, however they were doing it at all different times of the year. Mostly it seemed to be around like January before Easter in those months, usually in the spring. So this question kept coming up, and this pope decided that he would make it December 25th right in the middle and right after one of the most popular pagan ceremonies concluded. And his reasoning was, if I put it there, these new converts come, they already know how to celebrate these holidays, it'll be more appealing to them, and they'll just keep celebrating, but now with Jesus in mind. The problem is, if you can figure they brought all these customs with him, with them. Now, the true Christians celebrated correctly. They only focused on the birth, and that's what they celebrated. But everybody else that was coming and converting, or kind of like it's happened today, the culture said, oh, that's a pretty cool holiday. Let's apply our pagan practices to it. So it was so bad during the Middle Ages, and up, a t- up until about the 1800s, that it is more closely compared to Mardi Gras, the debauchery and drunkenness and all-out food that happens, than what we know as our wholesome family gatherings, right? That doesn't start until the beginning of the 1900s, right? As a matter of fact, at, uh, during the 1800s, at one point, the Church of England bans Christmas. We're not celebrating anymore because it's so out of control. And the Puritans, when they first got here, they were like, we're not celebrating Christmas because it's not biblical. That's not to say they weren't commemorating and celebrating the birth of Christ. They just were refused to do it in those customs. So you can see that over the history, because doesn't that happen to us? We think, oh, this is Christmas. This is the way it's always been. And it's not, right? 
So now in the 1900s, we, it's the holiday that we see. But here's the problem. It wasn't Christians that said, let's make this wholesome and let's put Jesus as the focus. No, let's just calm it down, family. Let's make it appealing to everybody. And we know what the problem was th with that is, right? And it always seems to be that the church plays a secondary role. The culture decides and then the church follows along, which we know is not the way it's supposed to be. That is not the order that the Bible tells us how we are supposed to conduct ourselves in Christians. So then like now, then like now, Christmas is hijacked by the culture and the world, right? So the, here, here's the essence of the problem is that it becomes a distraction, right? I just mentioned Thanksgiving, Lord, thank you. That night now, because we can do it online, hey, what are we getting for Christmas and what are you buying the kids? And uh, I get, I get anxious just thinking about it, right? But that's what happens to us. It is a huge distraction. The lights, the trees, the shopping, the gifts, Santa. Let me take a deep breath and tell you what my problem with Santa is, right? He has a lot of the attributes, think about it, right, that are only God's. Omnipresent, he can get around the world in one night. Omniscient, he knows what you're doing. He knows what you're thinking, if you've been good or bad, right? And then all of a sudden, I heard John MacArthur just recently talk about an Episcopalian reverend seriously speaking about how Santa should be deified. Like he's a real person because he has all these attributes. Absolute ridiculousness, right? And here's my, parent, here's my problem with some Christian parents because I've had this conversation You want to continue to lie to your children about Santa? Because that's what we're doing. The first thing that happened to me 2012 when I first came to know Jesus, when he saved me by his grace and mercy, was I need to tell, well, my oldest two already knew, but my Christian was seven. I said, I got to tell Christian, man. I've been lying to him. I was convicted of that. And I told him and he was fine. He's like, I, I kind of knew that. That's cool. Thank you for telling me. Because here's the problem. We tell them about Jesus next door, and if we're telling them about Santa, when they find out Santa's a lie, then is Jesus a lie too? Oh no, Jesus is not a lie, but Santa is. Oh, sorry, I'm lying. So now it's okay to lie. I will debate this with anybody, and you tell me when is it okay to lie, when the Bible clearly says it's not. So that's my problem with Santa. I'll get off that soapbox. Trust me, I won't tell any of your kids that Santa's not real. I'll leave that up to you. Let the Holy Spirit convict you, right? But here again, and none of these things, even though like the tree and all the lights, those all come from pagan practices. And I'm not telling you, please, that don't light up the house and don't put up the tree and all that because it's evil. No, no, no. Have at it. Do it. But don't let it become the focus. Don't let it take away from the distraction of why we are in this season, why we chose this date to know that Jesus is the only reason. There is no other reason. It is not to get together with family. It is not to stuff our face until I have to have the whole bottle of Tums. It is because Jesus is the only reason. That is what really matters. So my problem with Christmas is not Christmas in and of itself. It is when it distracts us from Jesus. So let's dive into the verse, into the text, right? We see here Jesus approximately... 48 days, uh, and, I, and I apologize, I started at verse 21, and now I'm glad I included it. 
I said verse 22, but I started at verse 21. At the end of eight days, he was circumcised, right? And it's important. Sometimes we read these things, and at the end of eight days, he was circumcised. Yeah, good, no. He was not only born as a man, the incarnation, we'll get into that later, how important that is, but he subjected himself to the law. Eight days, the law says, you'll be circumcised, you'll be circumcised. And that's when they gave him the name of Jesus. Right? And then when actually we start in verse 22, when they came for their purification according to the law of Moses, again, the parents obeying the law. And as we'll see in verse 23, Jesus again is subjected to the law because he is the firstborn. It's about 48 days. Eight days, circumcision, 40 days, purification purification is completed and now we have to offer the sacrifice so the visit is twofold they're going to uh, offer their Mary's specifically her purification because she was considered unclean and then the purpose of presenting Jesus because every firstborn was said to be holy so we saw in verse 21 which I mistakenly read, but it was no mistake, um, how Jesus was circumcised. And Paul must have had this in mind in Galatians 4, 4, and 5. He was made under the law to redeem that, those that were under the law. He was made under the law. Right from the beginning, he was subjected to the law of circumcision. Right? And again, it points to the incarnation uh, because he had to be born like us and he lived like us, and he suffered like us, but he was nothing like us. Because although he is born under the law and subjected to the law, he was the only one being fully God and fully man that could accomplish and live perfect and blameless under the law. And that was what was required to save us. Right? And now, the second part is he is brought in because of this dedication. And that comes from Numbers 3.13, and it relates back to the Exodus and Egypt. God said, for all the firstborn are mine, on, that, on the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both of man and of beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. So here we see the, uh, the contrast of the Messiah born into the law and intertwined by obedience to the law, yet he was going to save us from that very law. Right? And then we look at verse 24. Again, something that we might gloss over, skip over, the sacrifice that was chosen. If you go back to uh, verse 30, um, I'm sorry, in the Old Testament, I believe it was in Numbers, the actual sacrifice is a lamb, is a lamb. But you have to have money for a lamb. But because no one is left out in the law, just because you're poor, right, they offer this option. If you can't afford the lamb, Bring a, per, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Even the poor could afford that, right? So it is pointing to the poverty that Jesus was born into, right? I've heard this, but Jesus was given gold, right? The three gifts. First of all, we know those three gifts were not for Jesus himself, but they were very symbolic. I mean, they were given to him but they had so much symbolism involved. And the gold probably was not a treasure trove in a, in a box or a bucket. And it was probably, could have been a good amount, we don't know. But it wouldn't have made them wealthy. It wouldn't have given them the ability to, you know, live in opulence, right? 
and it's right here. They had they, all, that's all they could afford: the pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons, right? And, and I uh, um, refer back to John MacArthur, who points out the significance of this verse when we're looking at the Christmas story, because it's such a contrast, right? The poverty that our Lord was born in to the opulence and the wealth that we have in this country and that we spend on gifts, right? That dark night is in contrast to the bright lights that light up our streets and our homes during this time, a dirty, filthy manger, animals all around with the cleanliness of malls and restaurants that we all enjoy. It's such a contrast to what, how he was born, where he was born, the context that he was born in. But the center of all of it, as we look at the story, is that Jesus is the only reason. He is the only reason that he was born in those conditions, that he uh, was born and made unto the law, like Paul says. He is the only reason because he is the only one that could do what he came to do, right? So as we continue and we look at verses 25 and 32, we see this man called Simeon enter the picture. And the only thing we know about Simeon is what's in this verse right here. That's it. He was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, the salvation. Consolation equals salvation of Israel. He was waiting for the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. This is very important to note that prior to his resurrection and ascension and the promised Holy Spirit to all, only a few had the Holy Spirit. A few, not everybody. We know Certain kings had it, other kings did it. We know certain prophets had the Holy Spirit, other prophets did not. We know certain men in general had it, and others did not. So we don't know if Simeon was just an ordinary man, if he was a Pharisee, if he was a priest. We do not know anything about him other than these three things which make it so important to him because it was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, that he would not die until he saw the Messiah, until he saw the Christ, until he saw Jesus. So now we see Jesus holding the baby, and nobody told him. Again, the power of the Holy Spirit is upon him, and he can see that this baby that was brought into the temple, this is the Messiah. Kind of like when John sees Jesus, there comes the Lamb of God. The same thing is happening, and Jesus is only a baby, right? Jesus is only a baby. And then he proclaims these words that again at the beginning are, he is confirming the prophecy. And, and in starting in verse 33, uh, 36, we are going to see him be prophetic. New prophecy. But starting in verse 29, When he, when he speaks these words, we see that he is, he knows his Old Testament. He knows the plan of salvation for all people. And in verse 32 is where it's really uh, evident 
a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And that glory is only through salvation. He does, God does not glorify anyone. He does not save. So that verse right there is super important, right? And he would have had Isaiah chapters 7 through 12 in mind, right? Because in, in, from Isaiah, and, and it, it, you really have to read the whole thing. It's, it's a great section, right? Because he talks about the, the salvation that he will have for his people Israel, that how he's, he's going to save her from her enemies and bring Israel to glory, right? And also in Isaiah 42, 6 and 7, this is what he says, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. A light for the nations. And here he is talking about the servant, the suffering servant later in 52. But he's talking about his servant, the coming Messiah. See, the Jews were waiting for the Messiah. The Jews were waiting for Jesus. And it was always a plan for the nations. Anytime we see the nations referred in the Bible, it is not the nation of Israel. The nations are always the Gentile. So when he says, now my eyes have seen your salvation, here it is. I'm holding this baby in my hands and this is the salvation that you promised me. And it is for everybody. Not only for the Jews. You're not only going to save your nation. It is for everybody. It is for all nations. It is for all nations. And, and remember, the Lord had promised him that he would not die. And, and that's how he starts. I'm ready. I'm good. Now I can die in peace. Now, we can't assume he was an old man and he's just saying, okay, let me die. But a lot of times that's what we think because he'd been waiting patiently. The, it doesn't matter whether he was young or old. It was the condition of his heart that now he knew that he had experienced the Lord's salvation, that he knew all these promises were real. He said, take me now or take me 10 years from now or take me 20 years from now. It doesn't matter because Jesus is the only reason. And now I have seen him firsthand. Now I have seen him firsthand. So here is where the prophecy was fulfilled. We saw it in Isaiah. He proclaimed it. And, and remember, I just picked those, those uh, verses in Isaiah. But from Genesis to uh, uh, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah was predicted. The Jews were waiting for him. Right? And now we are going to uh, look at this future prophecy that Simeon is going to uh, um, lay on basically a Mary, most of all, but then he, he is still talking to his audience at that moment and to us, right? The first prophecy that, that he makes uh, to Mary is a sword will pierce through your own soul. Now, and you mothers, you, you, you guys cannot relate. I, I know I can't. If you can, explain to me afterwards. But you mothers and you have, have children if someone spoke this to you, that this son of yours would be a sword that will pierce through your own soul, uh, that's not very comforting news, right? Especially for a young mother. Remember, Mary had to have been about 13, 14, 15. We always think, you know, young, you know, older, no, no, 13, 14, 15, maybe. Young girl who's just been told recently before, you know, let's go back 10 months. Hey, by the way. You're having the Messiah, the Savior of the world. God 
is, you know, you're going to give birth to God himself. Fully man, fully God. Whew, mind blown, right? And now, Simeon says, and he will pierce your own soul. And when he said he is not he, but the events, the experience that you're going to undergo will pierce your own soul. And it had a twofold effect on Mary, or it should have, and it, and, it, and it did. Because remember now, you know you're going to give birth to the Son of God, the Messiah himself, through the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Angels appear uh, to you first, and then in the heavens, the star shepherds come out of nowhere. They're proclaiming all these fantastic things. Three wise men from, did I say three? Wise men from other places who are important come and bring you all these crazy gifts that you may not even understand. You might be getting a little heady. She might have been like, something's great is going to happen. My life just was normal, and now I'm heading for greatness. This is going to be fantastic. And he's kind of reminding her, it will be good. It will be fantastic. But there's problems coming. So slow down. Be ready for it. Because we know what Mary had to experience through the resurrection, through the crucifixion, and the hope then of the resurrection. And it wasn't easy. So he gives it to her straightforward. Right? But now we see what he tells the people and us. Three things. He is appointed for these following three things. The fall and rise of many in Israel. A sign that is going to be opposed. And many hearts will be revealed. Those three things he is predicting that are going to happen in the future. And we know that they do. That's the beauty of it. We get to see the story here, but we have the whole book in front of us, and we know from beginning to end, at least this part of history, our history, right? So the rise and fall of many. We know from the, the gospel stories, especially the New Testament and, and the book of Acts, that Jesus, again, is the reason that many rose and many fall, right? And, and what does that mean, the rise and fall? It literally means those that would rise up and would believe and those that would fall in disbelief and continue to fight against the holy God, right? And we knew that the disciples were those early ones that rose and we knew and we know that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are the first one that the Bible tells us are the ones that fell, right? And in Romans 9, verse 33, we, we read, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And then 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6 says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He was at the same time the cornerstone. And if you're familiar with ancient buildings, that first stone had to be laid perfectly and it supported the rest of the building. If you took it out, the building crumbled. It was that important. So Jesus was that cornerstone. He was the rise of many. But by the same token, we see that God put that stone in the middle of nowhere that people would stumble on. Right? And we, we've done that. You're walking, you don't see something, and you hit that rock and you stumble. That was 
Jesus as well. The stumbling stone and the cornerstone. The reason for the rise of many and the reason for the fall of many. And he was also a sign that is opposed. And again, we know from early on in his ministry and reading in the Gospels that as soon as Jesus started preaching and the crowd started coming to him and people started following him and he proclaimed that he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, immediately he was opposed. And who was he opposed by? He wasn't opposed by the shepherds and the farmers and the workers. He was opposed by the religious leaders of his time. The very people who had spent hours and hours studying Scripture, waiting for the Messiah, are the ones that opposed him the most. So it's a great contrast. It's, it's, it's again, mind-boggling that not only did they not recognize the promised Messiah that they were waiting for, but they opposed him to the point of trying to kill him and eventually succeeded. Right? The people he came for are the ones that tried to kill him. And Peter said it correctly in his first sermon in the book of Acts under the power of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. This Jesus you crucified and killed Right? He was speaking to all the Jews. He later says the same thing when he's before the Sanhedrin. The very people who killed Jesus, he told them, you killed them. But before we get to, uh, like, yeah, bad people. I can't believe it, man. If Peter was standing right here today and I was sitting there, he would say the same thing to us. We killed him. We put him on the cross. Right? Because if any one of us we're sinless and blameless and didn't oppose God and didn't rebel against God, then Jesus didn't have to die, to die for me, right? If I could have done it, he didn't have to die for me. But it's my sin, my rejection of that holy God that put him on the cross. So we sometimes read this and we think, oh, the people, Pharisees bad, Sadducees bad. We are them outside of the Holy Spirit causing us to be born again and to see the truth and to surrender and follow Jesus. That is who we are. That is what we have to understand. Jesus is the only reason the gospel is opposed. I say this, I've said this before and I'll say it again. I could be in a room full of Muslims, Jews, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, you pick the sect that say they believe in God. And we could talk about God all day long. And they'll agree and give me a hallelujah and an amen if they're inclined to do that. But the minute I say the words Jesus Christ, it's like, you know, the old school. I don't think we have them. I think they're coming back. Records, you know, and the needle would slide across, right? You old guys know the young kids are, you know? All right. See? It's coming back, I'm telling you. But that's what happens. Jesus, wait, oh, you mean Jesus, that he was a man and he became God? No, no, that's, that's you guys over there, the Mormons. Jesus, the one that was taken from the cross and we're still waiting for him to come? No, that's you guys, Muslims. Jews, Jesus, he hasn't come back. We're waiting for him. No, see what I'm saying? They'll kick me out. They'll, they'll, they'll insult me. They, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. Don't be surprised, church, when you start talking about Jesus that you will be opposed. And the last thing Simeon says is, many hearts will be revealed. Many hearts 
will be revealed. What does the world tell us about our heart? Follow your heart. Follow your dreams. It's all good. Your heart knows. I'm glad some of you are shaking your head no, right? Because Jeremiah said it the best. The heart is deceitful and wicked above all else. And what did Jesus say? Matthew 15, 18 through 19. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And that's what defiles a person. My heart defiles me. Because what is in there eventually comes out. And even if it doesn't come out, I'm thinking it. This defiles a person. Verse 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. This is the condition of the fallen man's heart. This is the condition. But again, God promised the Messiah. And in Jeremiah 31, 33, he says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. See, Jesus reveals the true condition of your heart. Jesus reveals the true condition of your heart. And this is why when we are born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, He takes that heart of stone, which causes us to be angry and selfish and vengeful and hard. And He gives us that heart of flesh when we're becoming, when we, as being made of stone or being made of flesh when we face Jesus we are born with that heart of stone. We are born with that rebellion in us. We are born with the me, 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 me. Right? You never have to tell a baby to cry when it's hungry or when it's pooped. You never have to tell a baby to say, that's mine. Give me. I want. We're born that way. We're born that way. Right? And the good parents teach the babies, no, no, we share, and we teach them these things, but not until Jesus causes us to be born again is that heart, heart of stone removed, and we are given that heart of flesh that is filled with the Holy Spirit, and why does this happen? Jesus is the only reason. Jesus is the only reason that hearts are transformed, and we are made new creations in him. Christianity, right? The birth of Christ is just as important as his death and resurrections. And for a lot of Christians, me included, like I, I, this really was revealed to me over the course of the last two weeks. Uh, prior to even Angel asking me to um, prepare this sermon, I was in conversations with the young adults from the church down in Miami. And one of them invited me to his college group. And, and they asked this a question that revealed to me how important the birth of Jesus is. Because if we look, especially at the Gospel of John, right? 3.16, everybody knows that. He gave his only son. And we can finish that. But we miss that part of he gave. And in 1 John, he says this quite often. And sent. He does that giving and sent happen at the incarnation, at the birth of Christ. Without the birth, we can't have 
the crucifixion, or the resurrection. He had to be born. That's God's plan. That's how he chose it. And it's so important because the incarnation, and I keep using that word, but let me explain to you. All that means is God being fully God became fully man. It's sort of a mystery, but we can understand it rightly if we know God. And we don't need to know man. We know man, right? We get tired. We get hungry. We feel emotions. And God experienced all of that. And here's the thing that makes this unimaginable almost. Makes it so important that we miss because we know the, uh, um, the anxiety, the stress, the pain, the physical. It was, it was mentally and physically hard at the resurrection. We know that. And ultimately hard because he had to experience God's wrath, comfort, power, glory. See, when Paul talks about he emptied himself, he did not empty himself of being God. But he gave up his position in heaven. He gave up the glory he enjoyed in heaven. He gave up the power he enjoyed in heaven. He didn't give up his power. He just chose not to use it. He limited it, right? His position as sitting at the right hand of God, his wealth, because he was poor here, just to reside with us so he could feel with us, so he can experience with us. Because if anybody says, God doesn't know what I feel or what I've gone through, you're lying. Because Jesus did feel as a man. He experienced all that. If he was fully God, like some cults present, and he only took on the appearance of man, he wouldn't have cried when Lazarus died. He wouldn't have gotten hungry. He wouldn't have gotten tired. He wouldn't have had to sleep. We know he was so tired at one time, he slept on a boat while there was a storm going around. Form, which, by the way, he's never giving that up. That human body that he chose to take on stays with him for eternity. He chose that so that when he rules us face to face after his second coming, he still has that body. It's, yeah, I was mind blown too on that one when I recently found that one out. But it again, it goes to point to his great sacrifice. See, that's what love is. We see it in the Bible and we automatically default to love is his death and resurrection. Love is his choosing to come and live with us, among us, to be like us, so he could accomplish his death and resurrection. I'm not saying one is greater than the other, but we can't miss the, important, the importance and the significance of it. Fallen man is sinful. We need a Savior. We can't do it on our own. He gave us this great gift. He chose all of this, and it's for something that we cannot work for, earn. We don't deserve. We can't pay a could demonstrate. So this Christmas, let's tell everyone, not Jesus is the reason for the season. Jesus is the only reason. He is the only reason we have a relationship with the Father when He chooses to save us. He is the only reason that we will not face judgment and eternal condemnation. He is the only reason that we will not face the wrath of God. He is the only reason we have salvation and joy and peace for eternity while we live in His presence.
Don't get distracted by the lights. Don't get distracted by the gifts. Don't get distracted by all the foods and the drinking and the parties and the socializing. This Christmas and this January and this February and this Easter and the summer and next Halloween and understand that Jesus is the only reason and let's share that with others that Jesus is the only reason. Let's pray, church. Heavenly Father. Hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. If you have any questions, would like to connect or listen to our library sermons, jump right over to our website at www.holycitychurch.us. Again, we want to thank you for listening. And remember, this podcast is not intended to replace your time at the church. So we hope you have a blessed week and talk to you again next week on Catch Up with Holy City Church. Mm-hmm.